Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on something of a cloudy but cool autumn day here in the capital is Aphrodite Crasser. Aphrodite is the founding director of eponymous business Aphrodite Crasser, a London-based design studio. Um, Aphrodite, very warm welcome to yourself this afternoon and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. I'm so happy to be part of this, Scott. It's a great initiative and I'm so glad that I'll be able to hopefully help others out there who might need that kind of support during these challenging times. Mm, exactly right. That is exactly what we're all about here at the Leaders' Council, getting the authentic voices of British industry out there from various sectors during this quite trying time. And given that coronavirus is the long-standing issue that's dominated the headlines over 2020, it is only appropriate that we, of course, start there. Um, to what extent has it affected you and your business, Aphrodite? Well, uh, we operate solely in the hospitality sector, which is a fantastically dynamic and beautiful sector that's been growing uh, over the last 20 years that we've been operating within it. And as we all know uh, very well, it's one of the most badly hit sectors internationally, not just in the UK. So that has taken a real effect. And not just on our workload and, and, and our turnover as a business, but also on our clients, the morale of our clients, the morale of the people we work with. And the general instability of the sector has really affected everybody who's participating, working within that sector, um, supplying services or products within that sector. We're one of the service providers. We design restaurants, bars, hotels. And obviously, all our clients are going through an existential crisis globally now, which is uh, in effect affecting us as, as a design studio. And the longer the hospitality sector is, of course, being affected by this, are you finding yourself having to try and branch out to provide your services to other industries um, and interior design as well? Um, no. Mm. A lot of our uh, competition has tried to do that. Uh, we have contemplated, obviously, in the last nine months as a, as a, as a team whether we should be doing that. But uh, I've taken a decision as a leader of the studio not to do that. And there's two clear reasons why I've taken that decision. A, we are experts and, and, and real um, specialists in that sector. We've been building that expertise over 18 years. And I think it would be a shame for it to go to waste and apply our knowledge in another sector. And secondly, I feel very, very passionate about this sector. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful sector. It's about making people feel great and making people feel happy, you know, making making people create memories, going out and having a great memory. And if anything, that kind of input is more needed than ever now. So instead of us abandoning the sector and looking at other areas, I think we should all be working harder, putting creative ideas to the table, putting innovation to the table, thinking of new ways of dealing with this crisis short term, mm. but also long term, to still provide consumers out there with a respite and, and a chance to take a break from what is a very stressful time. You know, we work with people 
who create uh, amazing food memories, who create cinema memories or cinema operators, bars. We shouldn't be abandoning that sector. We should all be working harder in, in helping it going through these tough times and surviving it and effectively seeing happier times at the end of this crisis. So in, in short, we felt that, no, this is not the right time to look at to look elsewhere. This is the time to look harder and, and, and be more uh, resourceful in how we do things, be more innovative in how we do things, but also be more... Um, there are say caring and mm. and 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 and, uh, and and helping as much as we can with from our own you know kind of um, little world that we're operating. So one of the things we've decided to do lately, for example, is to help startups who are entering this world by mm. giving them a much more uh, a, a much more favorable fee structure that would allow them to pay us perhaps a bit later in order for them to enter the market now that the market is kind of open to new operators. So everybody, what I'm trying to say, Scott, is everybody can do their bit and we're trying to do our bit to help our clients survive these very difficult times. And from your perspective, how long do you, um, how long um, does the hospitality sector rather think that this is going to go on for? And the reason I ask that question is because um, even when hopefully we do have a working vaccine in place and COVID-19 itself is no longer an issue, because of the anxiety that the pandemic is going to of course, and also how it will hit consumer confidence, even when it is safe to do so, it could still take time for people to summon up the courage to go out into places where there will be lots of people and go and eat out, go and stay at hotels and just yes. sort of live life as normal again and use hospitality services. Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think we're looking at it from a global perspective and that's very important. We work uh, currently across three continents. We're, we're having projects in the US, in the UK and um, in, in, in Hong Kong. So they're in three different regions. I have to say that uh, speaking to our clients in these regions and working within those regions, not the, the confidence is quite different from place to place. So it's, it's although it's a global phenomenon, the the COVID has affect COVID has affected uh, consumer confidence in quite different ways in different parts of the world. So our, our clients out in Hong Kong who are a luxury hotel operator who operate hotels across China and 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 and. and the Far East, as well as Europe and the rest of the world, have told us that their hotels and restaurants out in China are performing really, really well. So they haven't seen much of a dent in consumer debt, uh, confidence, not at the same level as, as our UK clients. Our UK clients have been much more affected by consumer confidence dropping. The same with uh, the US, the market they're operating quite a different way. So we're creating a project currently for uh, Chef Gordon Ramsay out in LA. This project is, is going ahead very ambitiously because, uh, you know, there's a much bigger plan in place which will extend beyond COVID, you know. So as you said, if there is a vaccine, which hopefully there will be in the next 12 months, these clients are, are thinking beyond that. So they're thinking, how mm-hmm. do we still operate and are relevant in a market post-COVID, so that will not stop them from going ahead and opening restaurants because restaurants will still have a place post-COVID. But, you know, you really need to think uh, not just consumer confidence, but also how would uh, the behavior of consumers change? How will the digital world and, and getting used to this digital world that is becoming more prominent affect the choices we make in the future? Is, is a good example. We're working on on two new cinemas for Kerson Cinema out in the UK, and one of the big discussions is that these cinemas will not open 
until 2021 is the earliest and then 22 the, the other one. So we're talking two, three years down the line. How will confidence come back? But more importantly, what will consumers be looking for when they're booking this type of experience? Whether they go out in a cinema, they will not be looking at the same experience that they had a year or two years ago. Not necessarily just because of the confidence level, but because the world will have radically changed by then. You know, we, it already has changed for all of us. We're working from home. We're embracing digital technology. Um, today we had the news that um, a new feature of movies being launched directly digitally without going to, to the theater at all. So how will that, will that still remain in place in, in 2021, in 2022? Nobody knows yet. Nobody can predict the future. However, as designers, we're tasked to do our research and do our due diligence and work as hard as we can to understand this change and, and preempt it by designs that are relevant for this new world. And, you know, this is not a bad thing. We can see it all negatively, but actually it's a, it's a great challenging creatively, creative time for us to really think beyond what we know, to think outside the box and come up with innovative ideas that will stand the test of time. So consumer consumer confidence, in my personal opinion, would take quite a bit of time to come back, in the UK especially, because the UK has been more badly hit than other countries worldwide in terms of deaths and people being hospitalized, but also in terms of the financial uh, and economic effects that COVID had had in, in the whole market. So I think in the UK, in my opinion, it would take a bit longer. However, it's not just about building consumer confidence, but really giving people a reason to go out and experience something that they cannot experience at home digitally and, and, and give them something that is extraordinary and, and wonderful that really lures them to take that break and go out. And, and this is not the same challenge as a few years ago. It's going to be a much tougher challenge, but this is uh, great news for us designers because now it's the time to really work closely with our clients to devise these ideas and bring them to the table. It is certainly, and um, it's really good to sort of do away with this rhetoric that in the um, post-COVID world, the hospitality sector is doomed to struggle forever because it's not. It is going to mount a recovery. It is going to pivot. It's going to adapt and it's going to change to make sure that it's ready for that world. Absolutely. And so it's going to be a very interesting few months and years to come for the sector. Um, Absolutely. Shifting focus ever so slightly to talk about leadership just in a slightly broader sense, Aphrodite, I do have to Mm -hmm. ask a couple of questions here. Um, You are, in your own right, a leader within your industry. Hospitality Interiors have described you as a monumental talent, a rising star in hospitality design with the words of Metropolis magazine, and also you've been awarded Designer of the Year by Elder Co. in uh, previous years as well. Um, Now, Mm -hmm. What were some of the key inspirations and influences behind that success as you were sort of growing up and deciding for yourself that hospitality design, that's the career that I want to go into? I think the key influence for me has been my upbringing in Greece. You know, I I was surrounded by a country that's notorious for its hospitality, for for great food, for great, you know, drinks, great Mm. hotel, great hotel tourism. You know, that was part and parcel of my growing up and moving to the UK as a 17 year old to study design. It kind of struck me at a young age that, especially back, back in 92, which is when I, when I moved to London, it, it, it's, it, it kind of struck me how advanced this country was in terms of design in general and, and culture and the arts and, you know, uh, 
one one of the main reasons I wanted to move to London was because of the movies and, and you know the the music scene and the fashion scene and everything else that culture was taking place in the nineties in, in London. However, back then. Food and drink was really stuck uh, in another century, in my opinion. You know, I moved in and I was very surprised to find that there was hardly any choice of olive oil in a supermarket, you know, nowhere to buy really great fresh bread. You know, you can only get sliced bread, bread in, 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 a, in, in, a, in a package form. And, and really, you know, the, the hospitality industry back then, the food and beverage industry, shall I say, if I, if I was to pinpoint it a bit more accurately, was a bit behind in comparison to, to my upbringing in, in Greece, you know, and, 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 and having graduated from college, I met Julian Metcalf, who was my first client. He was, uh, he's, he's a guy who uh, uh, founded pret one of the biggest success stories in, in the British high street in terms of food and beverage. And he became not just my first client, but also my mentor, and one of the reasons why I decided to devote my 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 life in this sector because meeting him was almost like a complete, uh, how should I say, like a like like a eureka moment. You know, he's a, mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever got a chance to meet him, but he's a very passionate, creative entrepreneur who looks at the business from the inside out, not just, you know, from from a monetary perspective, but he looks at the business from a creative perspective, from a brand perspective, from a people's perspective. It's all, to him, building building Pret and subsequently Itsu, which was the project I worked uh, with him on, was not just about creating a, a great brand and a great financial success story, but really building people and, and creating a wonderful business with people who are very passionate about what they're doing and really rewarding these people. And that really um, inspired me, inspired me that this is an industry that I want to be part of because the hospitality industry is really about people. You can tell that the greater hotels, restaurants are operated by passionate entrepreneurs and that really um, motivated me to be part of this but also the the great thing is that um, she taught me that creativity is paramount to success and he believed in that and and that's why he built design-led companies such as Pret and Itsu which really proved back in the 90s when when Pret started that design and innovation can really be a catalyst for for success And, and I think back then a lot of entrepreneurs weren't really aware of how important creativity was as a catalyst for success. And, 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 and part of the reason I wanted to enter this industry was to really bring that uh, message out to, to more clients that, you know, to create a great brand and a great hotel or a great restaurant or a bar, whatever you're operating, a cinema, it's not just about a great service or good price point or, or, or great marketing, you really need to bring design and branding into the experience to really have a chance of succeeding, especially in, in a very congested market that we're all operating right now. And um, I thought that that industry was really ripe for, for me to take um uh, an action in and, and really mm-hmm. participate in and bring that de- design and creativity into that industry. I I have to say I I didn't I didn't expect that that industry would grow as much as it has in the last twenty years. The the growth of the hospitality and especially the food and beverage sector has been phenomenal, and especially in London, it reached the point of I think a, a few years ago 
the highest, we had the highest number of new restaurants opening in one year in London, which was almost 200 new restaurants, 200 new restaurant concepts opening in a single year in London, which is just really quite phenomenal. And and I think that's what makes this industry so beautiful and alluring to work in. It's it's got great people, uh, great passionate people, great leaders. And really a lot of innovation and dynamicism as an industry and an industry that moves really, really fast and responds really quickly. And, and that's why I truly believe that this industry will manage to, to respond to the current crisis and get out of the crisis because I really trust that the people within that industry are uh, fast moving, entrepreneurial, creative, uh, passionate talents that can really take their businesses out of the mess that they're currently in and, and, and bring the best out of their people. It certainly is a fantastic industry and it is going to have the ability to bounce back for sure. There's a great entrepreneurial spirit in the sector as well, as you've rightly said there, Aphrodite. And I know you've said already that we don't really have a crystal ball and we can't predict the future. But if we were to just simply look at the next 12 months, we know that it's going to be quite a tricky winter, sort of getting to grips with the new normal further and dealing Mm -hmm. with the challenges that's going to have, especially for hospitality. But if you could look just sort of 12 months ahead, where do you see yourselves being and where do you see the industry being in a year's time and what are you really hoping to have achieved by then? Yes, that's a great question. I, I'd like to think that in, in 12 years, uh, uh, 12 months' time, sorry, excuse me, not years, the sector will be actually in a very positive place. I think there there is there is going to be a slightly uh, a slightly bigger drop than we currently have, in my opinion. By the time we reach the end of the year, things will get a bit worse for, for the restaurant and, 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 and bar industry. Uh, as we hit winter, there will be less and less people going out. The people who will not survive it, unfortunately, will mean that there will be a lot of empty property in, in, in different places of the country and a lot of new opportunities for new operators and new ideas to go into these properties with, with a much more sensible price structure for them to operate within this property. So I think that will give a, 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 I'm hoping that, you know, by the mid of next year, there will be a whole new wave of new concepts coming in, occupying what is effectively the space that the old operators that couldn't survive this and haven't survived this have left behind. So I think it will be a time for a massive change where, you know, they will be out with the old and in with the new. I think the new concepts that we'll see coming into this um, uh, industry will be definitely much more uh, conscious in terms of how they deal with the environmental crisis. Beyond beyond COVID, there's a bigger environmental crisis to be um, addressed. They will be also more conscious in how they deal with their community and with their people. So that's not a bad thing. We will see, I think, companies coming in who are a lot more relevant and they're all more conscious in the way they deal with things. And and I, I can tell from the investment world that, you know, I'm quite close with, the investors that I'm talking to are looking to invest in new concepts that are really addressing issues beyond COVID and, and, and really addressing issues, as I said, of uh, environmentalism, environmentalism uh, uh, resourcing. How do you treat your own people? How do you treat your community? How do you how do you have a social conscious as a business beyond you know a financial uh, kind of uh, target? How do you deal with with other elements of running a business? And I think these type of new concepts will 
find a, an opportune time to enter the market because uh, everything effectively will be cheaper for them. There will be more opportunities in terms of sites, in terms of property. They will have more access to better property at a m- much more reasonable rate. And, and, and I think there will be still investors who will be looking to invest in this type of businesses, which will have a chance to succeed long term. So I... I I don't see it as, yes, there will be a negative time, I think, for for at least another six months, if not a whole year. But I think given given the change that we're currently seeing, there will be definitely an opportunity for new people to come. And these people will need to, uh, will need our assistance. They will need to be branded and designed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, if anything, because there will be smaller companies, they will need a lot more hunt. Uh, hand-holding, which is not uh, a bad thing because the best projects usually come when people get together and, and help each other. So I think we'll see a lot of innovation coming out. And and the operators we've seen so far who haven't managed to, to survive, I have to say COVID was probably not the only reason that they haven't survived. There were fundamental issues before COVID with a lot of these businesses. Mm. I, I, I cannot obviously generalize, but a lot of the operators in, in our industry who we've seen going under, I'm not surprised they've gone under. And I think COVID was almost the last uh, part that played the role. There was other 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 elements that uh, we kind of knew all within the industry existed before COVID. So mm. we can't just keep blaming COVID for everything. There were there were other structural issues with with that sector that were already there. You know, especially mm. when it comes to rates. Uh, business rates, the cost of renting, you know, the, the, the labor costs had gone up, ingredients costs had gone up. So it was already a very challenging uh, environment to operate in. And, and a lot of these people who went under were already suffering. And I think COVID just kind of killed them off. But um, that, I think, gives us an opportunity as an industry, as a wider industry, to rethink what we're doing and start afresh. And um that's not a bad thing even for us as a studio. We're, we're now rethinking a lot of things that in the past we wouldn't think of. And, and uh, giving, it gives us a great opportunity to change our ways. You know, we've been operating for 18 years and we perhaps even as a small business got into a comfortable place where we knew what we were doing and now we're asked to, to rethink. And as challenging as that is and difficult as it is, it, it is a necessary change for all of us. So I, I think there will be very positive outcomes uh, eventually but <laughs> until then it will be tough mm. tough for all of us for sure it's going to be a long road to the promised land that certainly is uh, for certain yes. but you are right there are so many opportunities out there and for people who are looking at the economic situation looking at what it's doing to employment and are very downhearted it is important to recognize that there are certainly opportunities out there and the hospitality industry is no different um, i've got to say aphrodite it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the show to discuss some of your views today and i actually think it Thank would you. be wonderful in future just given how enlightening it's been to welcome you back Back onto our program and just see how some of your hopes are starting to be borne out in the next year and we can catch up at how your studio is getting on but also what sort of shape the sector is starting to um, end up being in as well by that point it will be an absolute pleasure Scott. Uh, i would love to just let me know and i'll, I'll make the time that would be fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed welcoming you onto the show today. It's been a real, real pleasure. And most importantly, um, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the world as well. Thank you. Likewise for you too. Thank you very much. 
I'd also like to reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today as well. Do please continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Aphrodite Crasser onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is a politician who enjoyed a distinguished career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership. He has been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are 
now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, 
I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or 
public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. 
And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the 
scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition 
nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.